Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, starting at the first verse. Paul has been, if you remember, he's been recounting to the Galatians a conversation between he and Peter. Peter had separated himself from the Gentile Christians and was only eating with the Jewish Christians. And so Paul rebuked Peter to his face and reported that conversation to the Gentiles as a way of pointing them towards the gospel of grace and reminding them that we are not justified by works of the law. So that's what Paul has been doing. And now he's going to switch gears and now he's talking directly to the Galatians. And he is not mincing words. Verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of God. When I was in college, and I've shared this many, many times, but just as to kind of a recap, When I was in college, I was on staff with Young Life, and Young Life is a ministry that reaches out to college or high school students. And the primary way that it did it, and I'm so thankful for this because it's it's really shaped me for ministry, the primary way that Young Life taught its leaders to reach out to high school students was through relationships. And so we did this thing called contact work, where we would go and have contact with high school students. I know, it's groundbreaking right there in how they name things. And the way that we would have contact with high school students is we would go where high school students were. 
We wouldn't try to necessarily attract students to where we were, although there's some of that, but we would primarily go to where high school students were and we would build relationships. And so while I was in high or while I was in college, I spent a lot of time at Holland Christian High School. I would go to, and they didn't have a football team at the time, but I would go to their soccer games, I would go to track meets, I would go to tennis matches. I would even go to school during the lunch hour and I would stand around like the like the super cool college student I was in the high school lunchroom, right? So you go into the lunchroom and you just kind of wander around and you hope that some high school students take pity on you and allow you to sit at their table and then you strike up conversations like, so how's the chicken nuggets, right? Like it was just this, this is what we, we did. And the hope was is that we'd build the relationship with these high school students and then at some point we would be able to share the gospel. Now the way that the Young Life did this was we had what we called club. This was a midweek gathering, kind of like youth group, but not really like youth group, and we would meet at somebody's house. So some student who was already involved, uh, we would ask them, hey, can we come to your house and have club? And we'd go to that person's house, and all their friends would come, and all the kids that we were building relationships would come, and we'd do some games, and we'd do skits, and at some point there'd be a little gospel presentation. Now, what we would also do with Young Life is we would try to get kids to go to camp. Camp, Young Life camp, I don't, if you've never seen a Young Life camp, like, it's, it, it's a bit, I'm just going to say, it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, the property, they got properties all over the country. They're absolutely gorgeous, and they are top of the line everything. So the food, amazing. Uh, the facilities they have is amazing. You go to the one up in Michigan. It's in Michigan, right? And you walk in, and the whole thing is this, like, log cabin thing, and then you walk into the dining hall, and I'm not kidding, it's somewhere between 20 and 30 antler chandeliers in this thing, right? Like, it is just over the top. They've got zip lines, they've got mountain biking, and horseback riding, and go-karts, and ropes courses. I mean, they just got all of that. Even one of the properties is on an island off the coast of British Columbia. I mean, these things are ridiculous. Now, you try to get the students to go to camp with you, uh, and, and you want to have a great week with them, but what you want them to hear is the gospel, right? This is the whole point of all of this, is to give kids a little bit of taste. The idea is you get them to this place that they think is like heaven, and then you get to say like, heaven's even better than this, right? That's the whole idea. And then you share the gospel. And when Young Life Camp, at Young Life Camp, there was a certain way in which the gospel was presented. And, and so there's this flow to the day, the day you'd wake up and you'd, do your, you'd have breakfast, and then there'd be some activities, and then there's lunch, and then there's free time all day, and then you'd have dinner, and then after dinner would be a club at the camp, and then there would be a speaker. The speaker would get up at the end of the club, and they would begin the talks the very first week by just simply saying, there's a God. There's a God who created all of this. And this God is knowable, right? That's, that's day one. There's a God. He created everything. He's good because look at this good creation, and this God is knowable. You can, you can have a relationship with this God. Day two, do the same type of thing. You'd have dinner and then you'd go to club in the evening and the speaker would get up and say, okay, that God who created everything, he actually became a man and took on flesh and he did it in the person of Jesus. And this is how we know that Jesus is God. It sort of walks through the biblical evidence for this. With day three, same type of thing, go throughout the day, dinner, club in the evening, and you build on this idea of the person of Christ, and you start to explain this is who Jesus was, and this is what he taught in his ministry, and this is some of the things that he did, and he, he healed people, and he said these things, right? And so you're getting all of this presented. So we've got God, there's a God, he created, that God became a human in Jesus, this is a little bit of who Jesus is. Now, day four switches things up. Remember, club was always in the evening, right? 
This time you wake up in the morning, you have breakfast, you do some activities, you go to lunch, and then after lunch we have club again. And at this club, the kids are introduced to the idea of sin. Sin is something that separates us from God. Sin is something that, that harms God's good creation. And there's nothing that we can do to fix the situation, and there's nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. There's this, this gulf between us, a relational gulf that exists between us and God. And that's all we tell the kids. Like, that's it. Now, you do that earlier in the day, so that instead of 24 hours between talks, there's now, as much as you can, you create more space in the week. Now there's 36 hours. 36 hours where the kids are just kind of sitting under the weight of there's sin in your life. You are a sinner. You are separated from God. There's nothing you can do. This sin harms the good creation of God. And what's crazy is, without fail, if the kids were going to act out, if fights were going to break out, if, if guys and girls, like guys are blue and girls are, pur- are, are, pink, are pink and you don't want to make purple, right? If that was going to happen at camp, it was going to happen in those 36 hours. If there's fights that are going to break out, it was going to break out in that 36 hours. It's just, it was uncanny how when things started to go off the rails with your cabin, whatever, it was during that 36 hours when kids have been introduced to sin and that's all. And so you go through the whole day, you go through the whole next day, have dinner, And then after dinner, there's club, and this time we tell them about the cross. The speaker gets up and says that that gulf that's created between us and God because of our sin, that's why Jesus came. God took on flesh and went to the cross to redeem us and to reconcile us back to him. And you can be reconciled to God. Your sins can be forgiven if you believe. The next night... Is, what, is one of the favorite nights of everyone. If you're a leader, if you were on staff with Young Life, like, the club at that on the next night would be filled in the back with all of the high school and college-age staff who were at the camp because it was say-so night. There's this verse in Psalms that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so the speaker would get up and kind of close out the week and, and then he would say, if any of you have made a decision to accept the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers through the cross and declare him Lord of your life, I want to invite you to stand up and say so. And so kids would stand up, right? And it wouldn't have to be a lot, but they would take time so every kid could go around and the kid would simply say like, hi, my name's Nate Pyle and I've decided to follow Jesus. And they'd say so in front of everybody. Now here's some of the, the, the brilliance of Young Life. What they did is you build a relationship with a kid and then when that kid goes to camp, you go to camp with that kid who you've been building a relationship with for a year or two. And if that kid stood up and said so, said that they decided Jesus. You went back home with your student. And you got to begin to unpack. What does that mean? What does it mean to declare that Jesus is your Lord in your life and that you're accepting his forgiveness of sins? What does it mean to consider yourself a Christian? Well, how do you read your Bible? And you teach them how to read your Bi- their Bibles and you teach them how to pray and how to live as Christ followers, right? So this is what I did when I was in Young Life. And this, this is really just a, a snapshot of the whole Christian life. This is the journey that all of us are on at some point. Like we make a decision to follow Jesus as Lord of our life and then we, are enter, we enter into a process of becoming like Jesus. We call this discipleship. Or there's, another, there's, there's two theological terms that refer to this progression. The first one is justification. And this is what we talked about last week. That in the courtroom of God, when we stand up before God, who is the judge, our sins are counted against us, right? We have sinned. We have broken God's decrees. And at that point, the judge can either 
call us or determine that we are condemned and guilty or that the judge can call us justified, freed, not guilty. And what we talked about last week is the gospel is simply the fact that God, in Christ Jesus, declares us to be justified. That God, in Christ, accepts us, and that acceptance into God's community, into his family, into, into the covenant, that acceptance is a declaration that we are free, that we are innocent, that we are not being held accountable to our sins, but rather that the righteousness of Christ is being given to us and we are deemed righteous. This is the gospel. This is grace. However, that's the first term, justified. It's not the end of the story. The second term is sanctified. And so the idea of sanctification is that you are becoming like Jesus. You are becoming more holy. You are becoming something different. And we see this language throughout the letters of Paul, right? He talks about the old creation is gone and the new creation has come. He talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. He, he talks about being transformed of one de- to, from one degree of glory to the next. Uh, he, he calls his, his readers and the people in the churches that he has helped plant, he's calling them to imitate Christ. Or at least he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we can see throughout Paul's letters that he's calling, the Christi- he's calling Christians, he's calling you and I to a life of growth or sanctification. Right? So we've got justification, that point at which we are deemed justified because of faith in Christ, and sanctification, that point at which we can, well, not the point, but the process by which we are made into the image of Jesus. Now, justification, sanctification, I think we have to be honest about the reality that we approach these two things differently. So when we talk about justification, when we talk about that point at which we are saved by faith, I think it's very clear for all of us that that is a gift of grace. Right? There's there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to prove that we are worthy of receiving that gift. We are dead in our sins. It is a gift. It is grace. We need the gospel. We need the good news that God takes on flesh, becomes human, and then as the good shepherd goes out, looks for those lost sheep, finds the lost sheep, takes the lost sheep, puts them on his shoulders, and carries the lost sheep home. Like, this is salvation. This is the good news, and we know that we need this gift of grace, right? We're all, we're all on board with that so far, right? Okay, but if, if justification is something that we only receive by grace, what about sanctification? What about growing into the image of Jesus? Right? I think we've got to be honest about a subconscious, unspoken mental model that we have about the process of growth in the Christian life. Because if I... If I want to grow into the image of Jesus, if I want to align my life with the kingdom of God and and the principles that Jesus lays forth in, say, the the Sermon on the Mount, then then whose responsibility is that? Like, whose work is that? And I I think there's this subconscious mental model that we don't talk about, but it would go something like this. Well, in order to do that, I've 
got to study scripture and I've got to pray and I've got to memorize scripture and I've got to be disciplined about what influences I let into my life and then I've got to go to church and I've got to serve and I've got to reflect and I've got to kick this nasty habit and I've got to stop swearing over here and I've got to do this and then I've got to do that and I've got to do that and i got to. Or, or maybe we don't put it exactly like that. Maybe we aren't that explicit, but we, we, we put it into Christianese a little bit, you know? I, I have to learn how to apply biblical principles to my finances. I, ha- I, ha- I have to learn how to apply biblical principles to my parenting and biblical principles to my marriage and biblical principles to how I approach my job and biblical principles to this and so on and so forth. And the question is, is who does all that? Me. So the, here's, here's the real subtle belief. Salvation is a gift of grace. Growth. Growth is a work that I have to do. Growth is my responsibility. Growth is on me. And Paul says, you foolish Galatians. How are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by works of the flesh? In other words, the gospel saved you. Why are you now trying to grow apart from the gospel? The gospel saved you. The gospel will grow you. And so the way that the life of a Christian grows, the way in which we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next is not by our own efforts, but it's by continual application and sitting underneath the preaching of the gospel, right? It's when we take the gospel and we continue to, to hear it and to hear it proclaimed and to believe it and submit to it again and again and again. We hear the gospel, we believe, we repent, we confess. We hear the gospel, we believe, we repent, we confess. We hear the gospel, we believe, we repent, we confess. This is the life of the Christian over and over again and this is how we grow. And this faith, this faith that is centered around the belief of the gospel is a faith like Abraham's. Paul is he's calling the Galatians foolish, and then all of a sudden, sort of like out of left field, he brings in Abraham. But it's kind of brilliant at the same time. Because if we look at the life of Abraham, we, we can look at Abraham as, if, as someone who has a lot of works that you can chalk up as making him a really good person. Right? Like, just if you go all the way back to the beginning of the story of Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to need you to leave your family. Leave your father's household. In other words, leave your worldview, leave your religion, leave your, your security, leave your future, leave everything that matters to you and follow me. And Abraham does it. Abraham does it. Abraham wanders around. Abraham has has a son that's been promised to him, and then God says, hey, would you go and you sacrifice this son so I know that you really love me, and Abraham does it. Like, there's all these things that Abraham does that you could go, that makes Abraham a spectacular person. But what does the Bible and what does Paul say makes Abraham righteous? His faith. All right? But how does Paul state it? And Paul, actually, it's not Paul. You can go back and you can see it in Genesis. I think it's in Genesis 15. But, but how does Paul state Abraham's faith? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, 
when it says that it was credited to him as righteousness, what that means is, is that Abraham was not completely righteous, right? What it means is that in spite of everything, God is saying that this man, despite the fact that he lied about his wife being his sister to save his back, despite the fact that he, he didn't really believe the promises of God because he slept with his wife's servant in order to have the son because he thought that that might you know, speed up the promise a little bit and all of that. Despite Abraham's mess-ups, he's righteous. Abraham's belief conferred on him a judgment by God that he is not to be condemned, but that he is, in fact, righteous. This is what that means. He was, it was credited to him as righteousness. Why was it credited to him as righteousness? Because Abraham believed God. Now, the grammatical construction of that phrase is extremely important. Abraham believed God. Just for a moment, think about how we talk about God and belief. H- how do we normally phrase it? If we were to phrase it as a question, how do we often, often ask that question? Do you believe in God? Right? Do you believe in Jesus? Well, I mean, let's just be honest. When you put it that way, I mean, do you believe in God? Yes. Great. There's not a whole lot spectacular about that statement. Right? Essentially what you're just saying is like, I believe that there is a God up there. Yes, that, that's it. It doesn't tell me anything about that God. It doesn't tell me anything about your belief. It doesn't tell me anything about what you're doing with it. I mean, and, and frankly, even the demons have that kind of, they believe in God. Like, yes, of course, there is a God. But here's the difference. Do you believe in God? Do you believe God? Right? Do you believe in our roof? <laughs> Do you believe our roof is going to currently continue to stand? <laughs> right? I mean, you can feel the difference, can't you, when you put it like that? Thank you for the illustration. That was really helpful. <laughs> Do you believe God? Do you believe, in, Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe in God? Sure, yeah, I believe that there's a, there's a God. Well, do you believe God? Well, do I believe God about what? I mean, suddenly there's teeth on that question. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promise and that his barren wife, whose age is quite well along, is going to have a child. Abraham believed God. And that belief was credited to him as righteousness. So do you believe God? Do you believe God and all that God says about you? Do you believe that you were created in the image of God? That the very ridges of the divine fingerprint are on your being and indwell you with worth and agency and purpose and beauty and strength and value? Do you believe God? Do you believe that you are sinful and in need of a Savior? Do you believe that you are so loved by God that he would become human and die for you? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later from the grave? Do you believe that God will raise you from the dead in the same way that he raised Christ from the dead? 
Do you believe that one day every injustice will be set right? Do you believe that every broken thing will be repaired? Do you believe that enemies can become friends as the lion beds with the lamb? Do you believe that the victory of God was not achieved through violence but through love and that that pattern continues and persists today? Do you believe that God loves the poor, loves the lame, loves the oppressed, loves the outcast, loves the marginalized? Do you believe that you are to pray for your enemies and to turn the other cheek? Do you believe God? If so, then live according to that belief as a child of Abraham, as one who is justified, because the righteous will live by faith. The other option, not to live by faith, is to live by the works of the law. And Paul says that all who live under the works of the law are cursed. Now, when he says that they're cursed, he's not saying that they are uh, uh, not as a curse as in hocus pocus or some sort of voodoo so that bad things are happening to people all the time. That's not the kind of curse that he's talking about. Curse in the sense that your experience of life will be under the pressure to conform and that that pressure, or not to conform, but pressure to perform, and that pressure to perform will be like a curse. That you will be forced to work harder and harder in hopes of measuring up. And that one day you will feel like you're enough. But it's such a difficult task and it's such an uncertain task that you're left to constantly wonder if you are doing enough. And there's a profound sense of anxiety and insecurity that begins to dominate and inform your life because you're never quite sure. You never get the report card that tells you exactly how you're doing. It's all just guesswork. You never know if you're doing enough for others, if I'm truly loving my neighbor in a way that would please God. And you, and you can't help but notice that someone's always disappointed. Someone is always feeling like you're failing them. Somebody's always feeling let down because there's just not enough of you to go around. And at the same time, as you realize you're disappointing everybody around you, or maybe not everybody around you, but a lot of people around you, and you're feeling guilty about that, and you're feeling insecure about that, and you're not feeling good enough about that, you can't help but wonder if God isn't feeling the same thing as all of those other people. Because if those people are expecting this of me, how much more is God expecting of me? And so you work hard. You work hard for others. You work hard for God. You work hard for yourself just to try to buy a little bit of a reprieve, just a little bit of security, a little bit of a rest to feel like I'm, 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 I'm enough. I'm doing enough. I've, 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 dis- I've lived a good life. And because, because you're constantly worried and you're constantly gauging yourself and measuring how you're doing in the eyes of others and, and guessing at how you're doing in the eyes of others, it means that you, you take criticism really, really poorly. When somebody criticizes you, it just like cuts to the depths of who you are because they don't know. They don't know how hard I'm truly working and they don't, they don't understand how good my intentions really, really are and that I'm doing this for them or I'm doing this for God. And, and, and then you look around and you see other people and they seem to be getting things easier than you are and so you're envious of them but then that envy makes you feel like you're, you're, you're wrong. So you try hard to compensate for the envy that you feel. And then you're intimidated by those who feel like they've achieved it all and they're at this place where the rest and they've got some secret that you don't got and you hope that one day they're going to share it with you if you're just nice enough to them. And come on, can we just say if you're living like that, that that is a kind of curse? Anyone who is under the works of the law it's under this curse. 
And this curse of exhaustion and anxiety of, of freneticness And to this, Jesus says, take my grace. I'll be cursed. You be blessed. I'll be condemned. You be justified. You're not guilty. The works of the law, they've been fulfilled. I I did that. You don't have to. I'll be counted as a sinner you be counted as righteous. Take my yoke. The burden is easy. The load, it's light. Take this cup. There's water here. You'll never thirst again. Take this bread. Be fed and be filled. This isn't to say that scripture study and prayer and all of those things aren't important. They absolutely are. But the growth that happens in our life isn't because we've gained a whole lot of information. The growth isn't because we've done a bunch of certain activities. The growth is is that through those things that we're doing, we're intentionally setting ourselves under the gospel and the gospel becomes more real. It becomes more beautiful. It becomes more profound. It touches deeper and deeper places of our souls. And the gospel is what does the work, right? This is, Paul says that even the faith, even faith is a gift. Even faith is a, is a grace. And so maybe the way that you grow is, is, is by joining with the man who's, whose child is sick and saying, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. And opening yourself to receive even more grace. Yeah, we, we, we grow through the grace of Jesus Christ. We grow through the gospel. We grow by increasing our understanding because we've experienced it more and more again. You know, there's this, the song, oh, I'm going to butcher it and I can't remember, but I never tire of hearing the old, old story. Right? I never tire of hearing about the God who created the universe, who took on flesh, became a man, walked among us, healed, taught, ate, drank, laughed, played with children, and then went to the cross and said to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and offered us grace. That's the story. Believe God and live by it. Here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to stand and together we will proclaim what it is that we believe in the Apostles' Creed. So would you stand with me and we'll say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. On third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall jump to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me, please? Father, you have begun a good work in us through the preaching of the gospel, through the hearing and the receiving of it, and through the Spirit. And Lord, I pray that by that same Spirit, we would continue to grow. And that the Spirit would work in us highlight the parts of us that need to die and so that the gospel can take root and grow something new. And pray that we would be a people who are sons and daughters of Abraham. May we be children of Abraham because we believe. May the things that we just said in the Apostles' Creed, may those be what we believe. And may that belief translate into, into a way of being in the world that is aligned with your kingdom that is at work in our midst. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. May we believe just as we are declared righteous by the one who has accepted us, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.